Hello and welcome to another podcast in the Album Year series. Um, this is the first time we've done a we've done a, a recording of a podcast episode since it went live. So there's a few things we want to say. First thing we realised is that we had to give people a way to listen to some of these albums we were talking about. Now we're not legally able to broadcast clips of the albums themselves as part of the podcast, but of course what we can do, and we should have thought of this to begin with we can create Spotify playlists. And that's exactly what we've done. So myself and Tim have collaborated on creating a Spotify playlist for each episode that we've done so far. And you can find that, um, I think it's on my Spotify artist account. So, and the other thing, of course, we noticed as soon as we went live is how many great albums we'd forgotten about, you know? <laughs> um, and not only fans reminding us, but also remembering ourselves. I mean, you just you just wrote me an email yesterday saying, 1992, I should have mentioned Suzanne Vegas, 99.9 Fahrenheit degrees. Uh, mm. which we completely failed to talk about. And I love that album too. And we completely forgot about it. In the 1973 episode, we didn't even mention Lark's Tons in Aspic. Quadrophenia, one we of my favourite Quadrophen- We didn't mention Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. To be fair though, in certain cases, these albums have been spoken of a lot. And I think the whole idea of the podcast mm. was to, in a sense, give new light to albums that people knew very well or introduced them to albums. And it's been really gratifying to see how many people have said that they'd never heard of Common One. They like Van Morrison, yeah. but Common One they'd not heard. They've listened to it as a result of the podcast. Um, Judy Sill is another one who seems to have benefited, or at least people have written to me and said, I didn't even know she existed. What a beautiful piece of work. They're kind of, yeah, I mean, they're two examples of almost like no-risk discs, aren't they? You can almost recommend mm. them to anybody that loves music and you kind of know they're probably going to enjoy them, you know. But in 1980, we didn't talk about XTC's Black Sea, uh, for example, which is a, a masterpiece in my view. Uh, Teardrop Explodes Kilimanjaro, one of my favourites. Right. So there are many that we've missed. And I think one of the things myself and Tim have talked about is if, if the show does do well and it does continue to run, we may well circle back and revisit some of these years again. So we might do a 1980 part two or a 1973 part two. Um, and, and by all means, uh, you know, go on to go on to the podcast platforms and leave ratings and leave reviews uh, and let us know what you think about it. We, we'd love to know. So... 1984, Tim. Yeah, a golden year in the annals of pop. Well, it is, isn't it? And it's another one. We had this problem with 1980 and 1973. We did not have it with 1992, but we had this problem with 1873 and we had it with 84 that it's almost like, what do you leave out? Because there's so many, so many great records released in, the, in this 12, 12, 12 month period. And so what, what we've resigned ourselves to doing is kind of, we're going to talk about almost little groups of records, aren't we? Uh, to, to try and cover more than more than just a, a small selection. We're going to talk about little groups of records. Um, and maybe uh, we should start with with um, great debut albums this year from intelligent, uh, intelligent new art pop artists. And I think the the prime candidate for to start the discussion here would be uh, the Blue Nile's first album, A Walk Across the Rooftops. Now, I know you adore the Blue Nile, Tim. I love this record, too. Um, but I think arguably it probably means even more to you than it does to me. For me, Hats is their masterpiece. This I always mm-hmm. felt I always felt this album was almost like a dry run for Hats. But I listened to it again yesterday and, and I, I I felt slightly different about it. It's it's quirkier and it's more angular, isn't it, than Hats? I think there's a good case to say that Blue Nile Walk Across the Rooftops sets out what the Blue Nile do so beautifully. Mm. Everything else has just been a refinement and um I kind of feel as well there's a purity about this album that 
I love hats, but there's a slight, as you've pointed out on occasion, there's almost a slight Springsteen-esque quality in some of the observations, some of the phrasing, whereas this has a weird originality. You know, it's almost like um, Sinatra in the wee small hours singing over Brian Eno. There's something very fresh, very unexpected. And um, I don't know whether they ever replicated this level of purity or originality. Possibly not, although I think Hats is a much more assured record. For me, one of the words that kept coming into my mind when I was listening to A Walk Across the Rooftops yesterday was it it sounded, based on what I know about what they did later on, it sounds quite tentative, but in a good way. One thing I did also notice is, I mean, you made the point, I think, in the first episode that music always takes precedence. That if, and John Martin is another example here, if... If the music, if the atmosphere is perfect, it almost doesn't matter what words you speak. Now, I just want to give you, uh, remind you here, the chorus to the first song on A Walk Across the Rooftops, which is the title track. These are the lyrics. I am in love. I am in love with you. I am in love. I am in love with you. The chorus to the second song on the record, Tinseltown in the Rain, is this. Do I love you? Yes, I love you. The chorus to the third song on the record from Rags to Riches is this. I am in love. I am in love with a feeling. Now, does this... Are you suggesting a limitation? Does this this demonstrate a slight paucity of inspiration in in the lyrical department? Or is it just that he's just going with that incredible kind of emotional charge you know the feeling of being in love and it's just all pervasive and it somehow just fit i'd never noticed it before it just fits the music doesn't it it does i but i think what it is it's kind of the simple payoff to what are often quite evocative verse lyrics i mean if you think of even the title of walk across the rooftops there's something in the album where it does give um a very vivid sense of a city at night Mm. if you like, or a desolate industrial mm. landscape. I, I find it very evocative of place. And the chorus is, yeah, you know, maybe there is a sense of conventional pop writing craft that what you have is you have this setup and then there's this quite simple but killer accessible chorus line. It's interesting, isn't it? Because they, they, they kind of pull off something that they shouldn't be able to pull off, which is that they, they almost turn this incredibly, almost over-sentimental music into something that even indie kids can kind of enjoy. It, it's, mm. it still feels slightly detached. It doesn't tip over into, into bathos for me. And I think that's the beauty of it. I mean, the Walk Across the Rooftops is a great example because the baseline on that is really quite... You mentioned the word industrial there mm. is almost, in a way that there isn't on any of the Blue Nile albums. I mean, by the time of Hats, it's completely gone. But on this album, there is almost a sense of industrial soundscapes. The way the bass is incredibly fragmented and angular on the title track. Uh, well, I think the keyboards on this are very original as well. And I mm. think there's often just a use of sound rather than melody, which you're right. They didn't tend to sort of use again after that. Maybe there's aspects of it on the very final album, High, where you almost feel that they're trying to recover what they've lost from the early days of Blue Nile. There's almost, I love High, you know, again, once more, it's within context, but it feels to me with High that they're almost attempting to recreate that landscape, that beauty, that sense of freshness that they had on the debut. Mm. Which is a tough thing to do when it's almost completely instinctive, isn't it? It's almost unplanned. Um, Absolutely. um, So 
I mean, this is, you, you kind of say, along with, with Van Morrison's common one, this is kind of a, 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 a no-risk disc in a way. It's, it's almost impossible to dislike this album, isn't it? I think so, yeah. yeah. And I think it's an interesting thing with quite a few albums in this year that we're going to discuss is suddenly that kind of post-punk angularity um, and limitation of references. You know, if you think of punk, the one thing it did, it took rock back to its rock and roll roots and its blues roots and its rock vocabulary, if you like. And I think what's interesting is that as the 80s progressed, you're getting more influence from whether it be ambient, jazz, mm. chamber classical, because on this, there's kind of almost Bartok-style mm. stabs of... Yeah. Of orchestra, yeah. So th- this is this this is a perfect moment because I've just shown Tim. Uh, we said we'd sort of group records, and I think there's there's two or three other records from this year that fall into the same category as the Blue Nile album. They, they're not necessarily all debuts, but they are. I think, as you very eloquently put, they're almost the sound of um, young musicians, kind of that have come through the sort of, uh, you know, post-punk new wave revolution, but they're now stretching out and reaching for other things like jazz, like ambient music. And in the case of Prefab Sprout, which is this their debut album, Swoon from 1984, almost reaching back to that almost classic Tin Pan Alley songwriting tradition of Rogers and Hammerstein or Burr yeah, yeah. Bacharach. Um, so two other wonderful... I mean, the Sylvian album was a debut in a sense too, wasn't it? It was his first solo record. The Sylvian record's got much more influence from from jazz and, and, uh, uh, and ambient music, as you say. The Prefab Sprout from the traditional songwriting craft. So there seems to be, again, something in the water, doesn't there, this year? Thomas Dolby, The Flat Earth, another one I know you're a big fan of, yeah. Yeah, well, also, you know, Laurie Anderson, Mr. Heartbreak, Scott Walker's Clement of Hunter. What was interesting to me, I remember, you know, because I was, sort of, I was 20 in 1984, and I remember being incredibly excited that rock and pop was looking outside of itself, and not only outside of itself in terms of musical reference points, but also in terms of lyrical reference points. There was something quite cinematic. Well, let, let's talk about one of those albums you've just mentioned, which is one of my favourite albums ever which is climate of hunter by scott walker i mean this album is just nuts uh but what what i love about it and we talked about this again in previous episodes is it's this it's the point at which an artist is between two worlds so Mm. as we know later on scott scott made some very 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 strange almost semi-theatrical albums uh, which i Mm. which i admire but don't particularly love albums like the drift and bish bosh which it's almost like he's deconstructed the whole process of of making pop music to a point where it has sure. no uh, it bears no relation to pop music at all. But on this album, there's still the vestiges of his great, you know, his late sixties, early seventies albums like Scott Three and Scott Four. But he's obviously also reaching towards the avant-garde tradition with this. You talked about the lyrics being very cinematic on this album. Of course, the lyrics are they are cinematic. But he's using the cut-up technique, isn't he? He's using the William Burroughs yeah. technique of basically using random phrases to create um, some very beautiful lyrical images, but li- images that don't necessarily mean anything. Um, except they do. In the context of the music, of course, mm. they do take on meaning. This album is still, for me, probably my favourite. This and, the, and, and Tilt are my favourite Scott records. They, yeah. have, they have that balance between the orchestral pop of his early careers uh, and the avant-garde tradition that, that would come later. Um, I just think it's it's a perfect record. Um, and you talk, I mean, we were talking about the Blue Nile being tentative. I mean, this this is the sound of a singer that's anything but tentative, isn't mm. he? He's completely uh, has the confidence of not giving a fuck what people want yeah. from him or what people expect from him. And I don't think the album did that well at the time, did it? But, but again, it's become a, the proverbial cult classic, hasn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. And of course, it begins with that great lyric, this is how you disappear. Yeah. And this is after, you know, he's, he's come back after six years in the wilderness. Yes. And it's such a strong statement of intent. Yeah, it, it's a fabulous album. It was, it was one that I loved at the time. By the time of Bish Bosch, it is a case of admiring it rather than loving it. You know, being delighted that somebody's out there making that music and feeling compelled mm. to take that journey. Whereas on this, I was completely with him. And it was, it was kind mm. of hilarious at the time because I was working with a saxophonist and um, he bought it for his mum because I'd been raving about it in the band rehearsals. And he bought it for his mum, who'd been a Scott Walker fan. And, mm. and it was a case of almost kind of ripping the record off the uh, the player and, and smashing it. She was so hurt. She was actually to the point of tears, I believe, because well, this it, was not the Scott Walker. It, it, is, it, is, al- it is almost as if Frank Sinatra... Uh, had suddenly done an album with Karl-Heinz Stockhausen or something, isn't it? Or, yeah, you know, or, or a free jazz ensemble. I mean, it's it's such an... Ex- it still remains one of the most extraordinary moves for, a, for a, you know, previously a kind of very mainstream pop teeny, teenage heartthrob to have yeah. made. This discordant, experimental... Uh, I mean, I you know, I, I can hear elements of what else was going on in the 80s at that time. The use of fretless bass. Some of the production techniques are very much rooted in that era, aren't they? The, the sort of early 80s era. Yeah. But he's completely reconfiguring that whole musical vocabulary to his own ends. It sounds like... Absolutely. It sounds like, and of course, lest we forget, there's some quite big superstars on this record. Mark Knopfler is on this record. Uh, Billy Ocean is on this record. Uh, doing, yeah. thing, doing things you'll never have heard them doing on any other record. Uh, and there there are some, there are some uh, you know, stalwarts of the British free jazz scene on here as well. Evan Parker is on the record. Yeah. Ray Russell is on the record. Um, just uh, an extraordinary record, I think, that, um, you know, hopefully will still be discovered in years to come. Let, let's move on. Um, let's pick something different. Now, you mentioned Bowie. We always mention Bowie. Bowie is, is like, he's ubiquitous, isn't he? Whatever, whatever year you're talking about, what era, whatever era you're talking about, almost whatever genre you're talking about, David Bowie is in there somewhere, isn't it? But 1984 wasn't a good year for, for him, was it, creatively speaking? I mean, there's an argument it was, to say... It wasn't his best. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't his, be- his best. There's an argument to say that the whole of the 80s was, was, was not a great era. And much like Neil Young, it wasn't the best time for him. Yeah. And some might argue that this album he produced this year is the is the absolute nadir of his career but being David Bowie it's still worth a listen isn't it and it's still worth talking about and that is tonight so Tim release the Kraken David on this on the David Bowie scale just how shit is (laughs) tonight well I think you're right I think along with Never Let Me Down that followed this it is the all-time nadir you know I'm putting Tin Machine above this I'm putting David Bowie's debut, which I actually quite like. I love that. that Debut, um, above this. Um, And the thing is that Bowie should have been making Climb of Hunter. You think of where Bowie's come from. And so, yeah, Bowie should have been doing something like this. You know, he'd had an enormous hit with Let's Dance. And Let's Dance, to be fair, was Bowie tackling the mainstream and doing it brilliantly. I think Let's Dance isn't his best album, but it is a very good pop album with a couple of great singles. And there's a real energy and you can feel he's enjoying it. Mm. And tonight is 35 minutes long. And, you know, I remembered buying it at the time and thinking, you know, Gilbert and George influence cover, quite interesting. Loving the Alien, what a fantastic piece of music. It's a false dawn, isn't it? It is, I mean, you know, you, you look at the second track and your heart begins to sink. And as it goes on, it starts to sink even more. And by the time of the fourth track, I think, which is Tonight, which is a kind of 
cod reggae version of a track he'd written with Iggy Pop in the late 70s. Um, you know, there is blood on the carpet at this stage. How, do, I mean, you, you obviously, I think you were an absolute Bowie fanatic at this point. So I can only imagine how crushed you must have been uh, putting that record on the turntable and it gradually, gradually unfolded. Yeah. Yeah, you can imagine it. The elation, getting the album out, listen yeah. to the first track. It's good. Not that I would do, you know, metaphorically, maybe there's this fists pumping. Yeah. And by the second track, heartbreaking. Yeah. By the end of the album, you're in a pool of tears like the squonk. So let's let's um, let's talk about something completely different now, Tim. What about this record? Now, uh, this I think this is another no-risk disc. This is the sort of album you can recommend to almost anyone, and they almost can't help to fall in love with it. Uh, Tabula mm. Rasa, Arvo, yeah, Arvo Pett's first album. Well, I say first album. I mean, this he, Arvo Pett is he comes from the classical tradition, so the concept of albums is not necessarily relevant here. But this was the first piece of vinyl that was released with his compositions on certainly on a on a big mainstream label ECM and this um, in a way it really shook up the world of classical music didn't it um, it, it it's unashamedly melodic after years and years and years of classical music gradually drifting towards atonality, serialism, the avant-garde, mm. including Alvo Pett, to be fair. Some of his early pieces are much more angular and avant-garde. But suddenly, out of nowhere, emerges this record, Tabula Rasa, with four pieces that are unashamedly melodic, harmonic, spiritual, and beautiful. Absolutely. I mean, I think... <laughs> Classical music had moved towards tonality before, obviously with the minimalism. You're talking Philip Glass, Terry Riley, it was more tonal and had an impact on rock music. And I think why this is a really good choice is because it did have an impact on rock music. Now, this was a classical album, but uh, you can hear it in the likes of This Mortal Coil, Dead Can Dance. I think Arvo Pear and Goretzky the holy minimalists, mm. um, even the Cocteau twins, they're reaching for that spiritual purity without the religious angle, of course. So I think it really had an impact on rock and pop culture as well as shaking up the classical world. And obviously, I know that you and I were very taken by it. I mean, I, th I think that's another no-risk disc. That's the sort of record I would just buy for somebody, even without knowing much about their musical taste. Confident, they probably would find it very hard yeah. to resist. Would do you think we should actually create a no-risk discs shop? We'd probably we actually have our recommendations. We'd probably be setting ourselves up for a fall if we did that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people would have yeah. us under the Trace Descriptions Act. But I think you're right with this. You know, like minimalism, I suppose, you know, if, give it the grandmother test. If I played my grandmother in C, she's going to punch me. Yes. If I play her tabula rasa... She's going to kiss me. Yeah. Uh, you'd it like passes to, the grandmother yes. test. You'd like to think that's true. My mum, my mum, for example, I did buy a copy of Tabula Rasa for my mum and she does love it. And uh, let's, so let's move, you're managing to preempt everything I'm about to do here, Tim. You've done it again <laughs> because you've just mentioned this mortal coil on Cocteau Twins. And I think we should talk about... Um, the, the 4AD releases from this year. Now, 4AD was a label uh, that, for me, were at their peak. They're still going today. They're a very successful label. They have things like Grimes, I think, and, and, and some other very hip things. But for me, the golden era is, is the 80s, the era of 
Cocteau Twins, uh, who released their third album, Treasure, in this year, which, which for me is their masterpiece. Again, it's that moment when they're in transition from being almost the kind of, you know, pseudo Susie and the Banshees tribute band that they started off as. Mm. And, and that's a little bit unfair because they're much better than that would suggest. But there's certainly an element of truth to that, is there not? Um, oh, yeah. To becoming a slightly more middle of the road, if, you know, the classic ethereal uh, sort of foray, almost the sound that people would considered to be the archetype of, of the 4AD sound. They're somewhere between those two stools on this album, aren't they? And for me, that's what makes it their best record. It's still got the edges. It's still got the primitivism. It's still got the new wave edge to it. But Liz Fraser is beginning to come into her, her own as a vocalist. And Robin Guthrie also beginning to come into his own as an extraordinary textural uh, guitar player. So for me, this is their masterpiece. And 4AD, as you pointed out also this year, was this Mortal Coil's first album, which has most famously Song to the Siren on it. And the mm. first Dead Can Dance album. Dead Can Dance, one of my favourite bands of all time. Mm. But, you know, the first album perhaps is, is a little bit of an outlier in their catalogue, but it's still sure. it's still a great record, I think. Well, I think you're right. I think this and the Pearly Dewdrops Drop uh, single EP mm. was where the Cocteau Twins found their voice. So I'd agree with you. I mean, you know, Victoria Land, when push comes to shove, might be my favourite. I love it also, um, yeah. Treasure and Pearly Dewdrops Drop is where they find their voice and when they were becoming a thing and and once more it's what we were saying is that this is music that isn't quite rock isn't quite pop and is reaching for the spiritual you know there's a strong link with the Arvo Pyatt and a strong link with the Blue Nile and I suppose what's also interesting is that when people think of the 80s they think of glossy shallow pop I mean still it prevails that image of shoulder pads makeup Mm. you know maybe even Dead or Alive, Boy George, something like this. But for me, the 80s was very much on a personal level and also the music I listened to about discovery. It was it was an amazing period of creativity and invention, you know, where I think pop and rock had kind of shaken off some of those restrictions that punk had imposed. Mm. This, I mean, again, I'd say, you know, I'd say this is a no-risk disc. Almost anyone... Mm could enjoy this music. It has it has very little to do with genre, does it? It spans mm. every genre and somehow is elevated above all of them. Uh, and I think that's a wonderful thing when a band actually achieves that point in their career. Absolutely. And I think another thing that kind of ties it in with this whole album years thing is that packaging was very important to 4AD. Yeah. The artwork was such a wonderful evocation in a sense you know um what was it 23 envelope I yeah think. Vaughan Oliver, Vaughan Oliver just, just recently Oliver. passed away unfortunately yeah yeah I mean it was just as amazingly beautiful and evocative of the mm. music you know it was a complete world you immerse yourself in with the album sleeve yeah. and the music and I think that was the case with 4AD and Factory, Factory. yeah with Peter I was just going to say a, a strong parallel with what Peter Saville was doing at Factory there was almost yeah. something about the sleeves that drew you in that made you want made you want to be you were interested in the music even before you heard a note of it or before you knew anything about yeah. the band and that of course that's the beauty of a great cover isn't it which was largely lost mm. uh, as CD became more dominant as a format we, we kind of lost yeah. that uh, one of the beautiful things about vinyl um, so for a, a shout out to Ivo I don't know if he's listening by the way but um, Ivo was the guy that signed all of these artists to 4AD it was his label in the 80s and if you're listening Ivo you did a great job mate anyway 
Um, so why don't we do, let's move to something completely different now, because there were other things going on. Uh, of course, there were other things going on in, in the scene, uh, the 1984 music scene. And one of the things that was going on, which I was really immersed in, because I was about the right age to be really into this, was there was um, a new wave of British progressive rock. Um, now, we, talk, we talked in the 1980 episode about how, you know, new wave of British heavy metal was kind of a thing um, or in that particular era. But there wasn't really many bands that transcended the sort of cult level and actually, you know, made mm. the jump into the mainstream. And, and the same is absolutely true of the new wave of, of British progressive rock that emerged uh, around about the early 80s. The only band that really crossed over to mainstream success was Marillion. And the, the, it was their second album, Fugazi, that came out this year. Um, and I think, you know, I loved this band when I was a kid. And I loved this band because I had discovered, you know, like a lot of kids, I discovered progressive rock through going back in time uh, and discovering the great albums from the 70s. But most of those bands were not making that kind of music anymore. And if they were, mm. they were playing arenas, you know. So it wasn't really accessible to me as a kid living, growing up in Helmer Hempstead to be able to experience that music in the way that I guess a lot of the people who were around in the late 60s, early 70s would have done in small clubs, mm. very intimate settings where the power of the music must have been, you know, visceral. And so to be able to go and see Marillion, who had an incredibly charismatic front man in Fish at the time. Mm. Um, and I used to go and see them even before they, you know, even before they, they released their first album because they were kind of local to me in Helm Hempstead. They, they were in Aylesbury just up the road. Um, and to follow them through getting their first Friday Rock Show session, getting signed mm. to EMI, the first single, um, the first album, Script for Jester Tear, doing really well. And then being fascinated to see what would be their next move and would it con continue their ascendancy. And of course, history now tells us that it was the next album that really made mm. them household names, you know, misplaced childhood. But this album is kind of transitional, isn't it, Tim? I don't know how familiar you are with, um, with this album. Yeah, well... I am. Well, I mean, Marillion and the New Wave of Prog is, is an odd thing for me, Neo-Prog, because by that stage, really, my favourites were 4AD, Factory, um, Blue Nile, Sylvian, etc., ECM, you know, uh, Miles Davis. And so, although I absolutely loved a lot of the progressive artists and still followed the original progressive artists... Um, the new wave of, of progressive artists I was slightly less interested in. A bit sceptical. sceptical about. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think Fugazi's interesting because it's where they find their identity. Of course, you can hear hints of Genesis, hints of Floyd, um, and hints of the Baroque 70s progressive. But if I listen to that, it's closer to simple minds than it is foxtrot or at least Gazi. or at least um, it, or at least it has as much in common with with with, with that certainly as much yeah. in common um and i felt they found you know i think they got better as they went on and mm. for me i'd say clutching at straws is the album where they really come together and they've got quite a natural identity that's entirely their own but it, it also draws an interesting question this this new wave of prog was against the very nature of progressive music. Progressive music, if you like, was always about finding new ways of expressing yourself. So I mm. kind of see the spirit of progressive. 1984, the spirit of progressive to me, perhaps, is in Blue Nile, is in the Sylvian album, is in Scott Walker, is in well, okay. Laurie Anderson. In that case, can I throw in another name at this point? Because I think yeah. you're right. I think one of the problems with the new wave of, of progressive music, or whatever it was called at the time, is there was too much reliance on the trope 
tropes of 70s, uh, you know, 70s bands. So, I mean, Marillion famously or infamously stealing a big section of, of, of Supper's Ready uh, on one of their early songs, unfortunately kind of gave them a reputation. Uh, so people could, uh, at that point, it was almost like people could only hear the, the sort of old prog rock tropes. Now, so I'm going to throw in a name for you, Tim, here. Cardiacs are the one exception that proves the rule. This is the one band that emerged in this year, 1984. They were way below the radar for a long time, but I think they're the band, along with Marillion, whose music will prevail because they were doing something completely new with the notion of progressive rock. And they weren't relying on those old tropes. Um, so their first album, The Seaside, came out this year. And I still think, even though it has very fairly low production standards, you know, in sonic terms, it still sounds like a band that have arrived from nowhere um, in the sense mm. that you you just get little hints that they've maybe listened to this or that, but at the same time, it's completely original and it's, it's setting an agenda for a completely new way of making quote-unquote progressive rock. I don't know if you agree with me. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Well, I think, you know, going back to the new wave of progressive bands, generally what I was trying to say is that they worked within a rock vocabulary and they worked within a rock vocabulary that, as you say, had been set by the classic progressive bands. And I think the thing is that when you were talking about Blue Nile, Sylvian, Scott Walker, Laurie Anderson, it's reaching outside a rock and pop vocabulary, which, of course, is what the original progressives did. You listen to King Crimson, Genesis, Yes... They're drawing from classical, they're drawing from country, they're drawing from jazz, which none of the new wave of progressive bands did. They drew exclusively from rock. Yes. Um, and that's not to say there weren't good albums. And I say, I think Marillion genuinely turned into something quite special. And even on the first album, you can hear that actually they're a good 1980s rock band. You know, they're not right. quite the band that people think they are because of this Sumpers Ready comparison. Yeah. Cardiacs, you're right. They're, they're in a different... Well, I think I, I think altogether. your point is well made that the, 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 the most of the new wave of progressive rock bands were drawing from this very small pool, uh, you know, of influences, uh, whereas bands like the Blue Nile were, were much, much more broad in their taste. And I think the same is true of Cardiacs. The same is true yeah. of Cardiacs, that clearly they are a progressive rock band. I mean, the complexity, the musicianship, um, but at the same time, they had as much in common with punk rock uh, or a band like Madness as they did with a band like Egg, for example, you know, who Tim Smith apparently said is, was his biggest influence as a kid was right. Egg. And that makes sense to me, you know, but uh, yeah. I, th I think Cardiacs are the exception that proved the rule. And I think Marillion would become the exception that proved the rule. Yeah. OK, let's move on. So... Um, Let's talk about um, let's talk about ZTT now because this is kind of the heyday uh, of uh, ZTT, Trevor Horn and Paul Morley's Empire. Uh, you know, uh, they were trying in a way to completely reinvent pop music, weren't they? And the whole way that pop music was pre presented, the whole way pop mm. music was marketed. A Secret Wish is, is still to come. This is not 1984, mm. but in this year we do have. The debut Frankie Goes to Hollywood album, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome, which for me was slightly disappointing given the three or the two or three singles that had preceded it, mm -hmm. which were some of the most amazing singles I think have ever been made. Um, but I've, I'm actually going to go for the Art of Noise album, Who's Afraid of the Art of Noise, uh, which, uh, which again is, uh, you know, it's it's basically an album about the technology of the day. It's an album mm. that almost exclusively used the Fairlight. Um, and it, but it's, you know what? The funny thing is it still sounds good. 
It's it's a great album, and and obviously, I, I guess in the public imagination, it's moments in love that sells it. You know, it's used in a lot of films and a lot of adverts at the time. Um, but it is an extraordinarily experimental album using cut-up techniques. You're talking about Scott Walker using cut-up techniques lyrically. This is using cut-up techniques musically, where it's almost the history of music mangled mm. in a fair light. Mm. And it's it's um, very unexpected sonically and great fun as well as being yes. innovative yes. and at crucial points being quite tender and quite emotional. Um, but, but weirdly, going back to the last conversation, um, I think you're entirely right. The Frankie Goes Hollywood album was quite disappointing. The singles were groundbreaking and exciting and the album didn't justify that double LP length and it seemed to sort of peter out. And And actually, I much prefer Liverpool, the follow-up album, which I think is a really underrated interesting piece of work. record, yeah, yeah. You know, um, but what's interesting about it is if you listen to the first side of um, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome, it's a 16-minute track with Steve Howe on. And in some ways, that really is progressive rock transplanted to the sonic territory of the yes. mid-1980s yes. and yeah. so on. And I think that what Horn did, it was reinventing his love of that kind of epic progressive music, but in a shiny 1980s well, I th- pop Yes, and I think what's interesting is that he grew up loving those things, but he also grew up loving things like Giorgio Moroder. And so you, it's, yeah. a, it's the confluence of the two things, isn't it? Great pop, great dance grooves, but with the epic scale and ambition of progressive rock at its most pretentious and its most yeah. far-reaching. But, it, you know, he pulls it off, doesn't he? he absol- Absolutely. And he, and he pulled it off time and time again. You know, he pulled it off with Grace Jones, he pulled it off with the propaganda. Although the propaganda album was more Steve Lipson than, than Trevor, but Steve was one of Trevor's, you know, sort of protégés. Later on, of course, we get the, the great Seal records. He managed to pull this thing off and and got the whole world of pop right behind him. Uh, but as you yeah. say, I mean, even... And it, when you kind of combine that with the kind of conceptualism of someone like Paul Morley, yes, you're absolutely right. It's just as pretentious, if not more, uh, as anything it- Emerson, Lake and Palmer did. Lesson. Absolutely, and I loved it. Um, right, I want to talk about something else completely different now, Tim. I don't think you're going to like this record, uh, but to me, it's a very, very important one. I, I would describe this as probably the most negative record anyone has ever made. Can you guess what I'm talking about, Tim? That's them Swans fellas, isn't it? Swans, yeah. Uh, Swans Cop came out this year. Now, I, I, I don't say this lightly. This is, this is not hyperbole. This is one of the most, I think, the most nihilistically negative records ever made. Now, if you do it with enough, enough conviction, it crosses over mm. from being ridiculous to being amazing. Swans, cop, tell us about your impressions well, of this record. See, it's strange, really, because obviously I, I like later Swans. I mean, Swans are one of those bands that are continuing to make innovative records. You know, Gyra is in his 60s and he's as creatively focused yes. as he's ever been. And he's yeah. not repeating himself, in my opinion. You know, I've, I've got a lot of time for Swans. And, and, and weirdly listening to this, um, sometimes I find it quite relaxing because it's like monumental slabs of noise. Mm. And it's a bit like if you take the most demonic Black Sabbath riff and you halve the tempo and then you have a man, I don't know, grumbling about his lupus on top of it, you're kind of getting there. I mean, I just want to read you some of the lyrics from... (laughs) You're going to get the podcast banned now. Well, because, you know, it's so ridiculously negative. Uh, I mean, this this is the title track of the album called Cop. Okay, nothing beats humiliation... 
Nothing beats them like a cop with a club. Nothing beats your head like a cop in jail. Nothing hurts you like a cop with a club. Nobody rapes you like a cop in jail. Nobody beats your body like a cop. Nobody burns your skin like a cop with a match. Nobody burns your skin like a cop in jail. The heat hurts. Humiliation is a disease. Now, if you imagine a man in a sort of loincloth on stage, flagellating himself, bellowing that out, out of this most, I mean, almost overpoweringly loud, snail tempo, discordant industrial rock music, it's intense. And I love all the Swans, I love all the Swans albums. They're all different. And as you pointed out, they're they're one of those groups that are constantly evolving, constantly redefining their musical vocabulary. But there's something so pure about their early work in the sense that it is uncut nihilism and negativity. And I fucking love it. There you go. Yeah, well, to me, it just sounded a bit like my childhood. But other than that... (laughs) Now, let's talk about another... We talked about swans being very negative, you know, miserabilism in that sense. Here's another artist that has a reputation for extreme miserabilism. And in fact, it was very easy to make fun of the Smiths, wasn't it, at the time? Particularly when they brought out Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now. It was almost like, you know, it was almost like what everyone already thought about the Smiths. And suddenly they'd released Mm -hmm. a single which gave them, you know, license to basically, you know, take the piss. but the, the album, that, that they, did, they did two albums this year. They did their debut album proper. But I think, and I think you'll probably agree with me, I think the compilation of Peel Sessions and single A and B sides, Hatful of Hollow, is, um, is the superior record. So many great tracks on this. Everyone will probably know how soon is now, this charming man. But songs like, um, you know, This Night Has Opened My Eyes, what mm. a lyric. What a lyric. I mean, you know, social conscience and all that. Well, I mean, I was a big Smiths fan and I agree with you. I think the Smiths' debut album, the one that they'd gone in to make as an album, there's something a bit flat about it. I mean, it's got some incredible pieces, especially... Um, the piece about the, the Moors murders is, is Suffer very, little children. very affecting. Yeah. Suffer Little Children. Yeah. Um, but there's something overall quite sonically flat about that album, whereas this presents the Smiths as they were. It has the highs, it has the lows, it has the connections with, with other types of music. So it ends on a couple of their most uh, beautiful ballads. Um, but in between, you get pieces, as you say, like How Sin Is Now, which is the band at their most experimental. And and having those is interesting because, you know, I always found it quite funny and, and maybe it's a Northern English thing. I'm not quite sure. You know, to me, it was always irony. It was always Completely. quite amusing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Although we may have to see things in a slightly different light, knowing what we know about Morrissey now. It's, unfortunately, it's one of <laughs> you almost can't admit to liking Morrissey nowadays, you know. But but uh, certainly at the time, he seemed to be, you know, as you say, very witty, very ironic. And they were genuine, genuine laughs, weren't they? But, you know, one thing I think is getting missed about the Smiths, and this is another return kind of post-punk, is that I think because Morrissey's voice which is totally distinctive totally his own and again a real deviation from that affected clipped sound that dominated the late 70s early 80s one of the things that missed is that it's a return of virtuosity with bands like the smiths prefab sprout to an extent roddy framast at camera you're talking about amazing instrumentalists i mean Mm. ma and rook are actually superb musicians i mean if you actually listen to the chords in um, Heaven Knows, you know, it actually it's closer to 
Doctor Hook than it is an indie album. But yeah, yeah. Um, if, if you listen to some of the other, he's managing to sort of weave together a kind of a history of great rock phrasing. You can hear the early Beatles in it. You can hear even the epic Backrack and David chord sequences. This is very clever musically. Yeah, and I think, and also, obviously, you know, we have to talk about Morrissey's voice. Um, you know, he's not a natural singer, is he? Uh, he sings out of key sometimes, but he has just got that personality and that charisma in abundance. Um, and he just completely draws you into his world. Um, and, and so every song was almost like a, like a miniature short story, wasn't it, on, the, on these records? And he, Absolutely. And, and, and the other thing I love about Morrissey is he has, obviously has no concept of how a song should be structured. Uh, so, you <laughs> mm. know... A song like What Difference Does It Make? You know, he'll sing the chorus twice and then he'll get to the last chorus, which should be the big payoff chorus. And then suddenly he's singing a different melody and different words. It's like, no, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to nail the chorus home at the end. Um, and I love that about the Smiths. I think, I wonder if it was something, you know, we talked about the first album being slightly disappointing. Maybe they were slightly overwhelmed by the album. The idea of having yeah. to deliver an album statement. Whereas on this record, it's mostly drawn from single A and B sides, um, smaller chunks of music, peel sessions where they're trying things out. They haven't got that weight of expectation they've got from that debut album. So it mm. just feels more natural. It feels more like where, who they really were, you know. So It's I think, a lot more playful, isn't it? Yeah. My favourite my favorite Smith's fact still to this day is this one, is that in the space of time it took Yes to follow up 90125, their big million-selling breakthrough album with the number one hit, <laughs> to follow that up with Big Generator, the Smiths formed, released six albums, 20 singles, changed the face of pop music and broke up again. And then Yes released the follow-up. <laughs> But I think just before we move on from the Smiths, it's worth mentioning some of the other... You mentioned this kind of northern sense of humour, this sort of uh, slightly dry, ironic sense of humour. We also had some other great records coming out this time. Echo and the Bunnymen's Ocean Rain mm -hmm. uh, with, you know, Killing Floor. Is that the name of it? Killing Moon, I beg your pardon. Killing Moon. Killing Moon, yeah. A terrific single on that record. But uh, the whole record's great. The Icicle Works debut album, you, you talked about sort mm -hmm. of Muso. Uh, you know, that, that, that band were quite Muso too, weren't they? But great, you oh, know. Yeah, I, yeah. Love, I love that record, you know. Um, and the Water... water Boys released for me what is still my favourite record of theirs which is A Pagan Place um, you know a, a wonderful record so I mean this whole year is just full of great records isn't it well you know U2's Unforgettable Fire was this year right. as well and you've also got albums like the first Everything But The Girl album, Eden. You've got the second, yeah. second Talk Talk album, It's My Life. These are definitely albums which are beginning to show slightly more muso tendencies, aren't they? You know, whether it's the case of, of Everything But The Girl, definitely drawing from, you know, the jazz kind of songbook. Sure. Or, or It's My Life. They're, they're beginning their gradual move towards, you know, this kind of post-rock sound that they develop later on in the decade. Yeah, well, Thomas Dolby's Flat Earth as well, which, I, you know, my favourite Thomas Dolby album probably is the golden age of wireless the flat yeah. earth yeah. shows him expanding his vocabulary again sort of you can hear steely dan joni mitchell ecm jazz gabriel's experiments with um tribal music all sorts of things it's one of the reasons why 1984 you know remains a sort of uh, important year for me even though um, I realise that this whole period is often overshadowed by people's perception of it being dominated by 
Seven and the Ragged Tiger, which wasn't even 1984. Well, and also, lest we forget, this is the year of the Band-Aid single. Um, And I think uh, as a result of that, things became more worthy, didn't they? But not necessarily better musically. So we're just, that's just around the corner. We're just before that. So the last album I want to talk about, Tim, we're going to talk, we're going to list off some others that we haven't had time to talk about at the end. Now, Laurie Anderson made two albums this year. One of them is a five LP box set, which to me is her definitive statement, uh, which is the United States album, which is an all-encompassing work she was working on for many, many years, a performance piece, which contains most of the songs that are also present on Mr. Heartbreak and the previous record, Big Science. So it's really a masterpiece of, of, you know, of, of 80s conceptual performance art and music and theatre and lighting design and poetry and prose. Um, but this album uh, is kind of a distillation of that, slightly more higher production mm. standards uh, because United States was recorded live. And I know this is your favourite Laurie Anderson album. How to describe Laurie Anderson? She, she kind of comes out of that tradition of, of performance art and, and artists like Robert Wilson and Philip Glass, doesn't she? But, but she's yeah. really got her own thing uh, going on. In fact, I, I actually thought we should talk about this uh, Laurie Anderson using the Laurie Anderson voice because she yeah. kind of speaks like this. And everything has this kind of android delivery. The kind of voice you'd hear on an automated telephone system today. It's true. But she was one, she was kind of drawing on that. It's almost like making the banal exotic. Well, I mean, her first album, Big Science, is the one that sounds more like United States, the box set. It's got that thinner soundscape, um, although it's more produced. And of course, it has one of the most unusual top five hits of all time in Oh Superman, Mm. which is clearly coming out of Einstein on the beach, but with sort of contemporary electronic instrumentation. And and that remains a favourite for me. And this album, I think, is my favourite because it was her expanding. You know, she had Adrian Ballou playing a lot of the Nile wild Rogers. guitar on it. Yeah, Nile Rogers is Nile on this Rogers. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bill Laswell, mm-hmm. I think, produces this, doesn't he? So she's stretching her parameters on this. You know, it's, it's a great sounding record. And as you say, I think she manages to make the banal sound profound. And, but I think, I think what's, um, what's, what's, sorry, I was just going to say, what's also nice about Laurence, isn't it? It's, it's, it's that she, you know, she's obviously come to music as a secondary thing. Um, yeah. And she's brought with her a lot of kind of, you know, the vocabulary from being a performance artist or a poet. So, look, for example, in, in her lyrics, there's a lot of repetition, isn't there? So, like, United States starts off with, you're driving, you're driving at night, you're driving on a dark road at night, and you've lost mm. your way, you've lost your way. So it's this constant kind of finding the rhythm of quite in themselves, quite banal phrases. Yeah. Um, and I just, you just get, I mean, her voice is just wonderful anyway, isn't it? So you kind of get yeah, hypnotised. Yeah. Well, she, you know, she obviously came out of performance art. She came out of performance literature to an extent. Obviously, you work with William Burroughs, who appears on this mm. album Shocking. as well. And he was quite, you know, a compelling performer. And you can see that she's honed this craft where she's been to poetry readings. She's seen the early shows by the likes of Philip Glass. And she's managed to sort of fuse this with a contemporary pop vocabulary that actually isn't as experimental or frightening. You know, the whole point is that, you know, with this no-risk disc, you're not going to recommend Swan's Cop on a no-risk disc. No. You're probably not going to recommend this, but actually it's not a million miles away from what Gabriel's doing or David Byrne is doing. And some of that banal repetition I hear in David Byrne as well as 
Laurie Anderson, yes. where it's almost aspects well, of junk yes. culture. I mean, David Byrne is definitely an acquired taste, isn't he? Too. I think. I think. I think what's completely absent from from Laurie Anderson is any sense of um, the tradition of blues, soul, rock and roll. That's completely absent, isn't it? This is very much New York in the in the early eighties, yeah. um, a kind of arch uh, performance art aesthetic. Well, well, it's interesting because I know that Peter Gabriel always thought she should be huge and and wanted to push her towards a a more pop vocabulary and you wonder how much of pop she was aware of because I thought this was with Scott Walker earlier one of the things that was interesting about him is that he said he was completely oblivious to what was going on and he bought the top 10 albums of the day right but he admitted that he had absolutely no sense of what was going on and just bought these top 10 albums to get a sense of what was happening so that his work could almost fit with the zeitgeist and and you wonder with Anderson (coughs) You know, whether she'd surrounded herself with Mm. people like Blue Laswell, who were that New York cutting edge rock and pop scene through an absence of knowledge or through a complete awareness of what was going on. One of the stories I love about Scott Walker is that somebody met just a couple of years before he made Climate of Hunter and he signed to Virgin. uh, Somebody met him on the streets. And of course, by that time, he hadn't made an album in like seven, eight, nine years or something. I think the last album was like 74. And they said to him, Scott, wow, it's amazing to see you. What, What have you been doing? And he said, I've been painting. And, and, and the, the, the person <laughs> said to him, oh, uh, what have you been painting? You know, still lives, watercolours. No, I've been painting and decorating. <laughs> He'd actually gone into you know, professional painting and decorating. You know, so little interest in, you know, you know, being in the pop world at that time. It's amazing. I, wouldn't you love that, though? You know, you need Scott to Scott Walker turns Scott, up. Yeah. Scott Walker comes in and he's there painting. Going, this is how you disappear. Well, yeah, while he's painting your bog. Yeah, I, I love that. While yeah. he's painting your toilet. Exactly. Your toilet. Yeah, I love that. Anyway, listen, I think we should call it a day there. But obviously there's a few other albums that we want to just pay lip service to that we haven't had time to talk about. Um... Darley's car. We talked about briefly talked about the Sylvian uh, brilliant, brilliant trees album. Mick Khan also released uh, an album collaboration with Pete Murphy this year. Darley's car, the waking hour, which I love. Uh, it's great, isn't it? Because it, that record. is the more logical follow up from Tin Drum in a way. Isn't much. It? Darley's car, the waking hour. Very much amazing record. Unfortunately, I've got time to yeah. talk about it. Uh, Manuel Gotching released E2E4 this year, which is a single one-hour electronic composition that is so ridiculously ahead of its time. It's unbelievable. If you listen to this record, you will hear most 90s electronica uh, personified in this record. Uh, a great record from, from Manuel Gotching. Um, what else have we got this year? We've got Ultravox Lament. Mm. Peter Hamill's The Love Songs. One of my favourites is Without Mercy, Dritty Column. Great records, yes. Uh, we've got uh, Roger Waters and David Gilmore both releasing uh, good records. Pros and cons of Hitchhiking and About Face. Yeah. Purple Rain, of course, per- Prince, which many people would say was the best album of 84. I wouldn't necessarily disagree with them, but I think that that's one of those albums that's just been discussed ad infinitum, so we didn't want to talk about it here particularly. King Crimson released Three of a Perfect Pair, their last album for, for many, many years, which is a, a really good record. So, Tim, let's now pick the album or albums that are closest to our own hearts. And let's pick the album that we think was perhaps the most um, influential, maybe the wrong word, but the most that was that was kind of setting the tone for what was to come later in the decade in that respect. So yeah, what, what would you pick as your favourite first from this year? I mean, I think Blue Nile for definite. Um, it, it's something that I still play regularly. I still find... Um, utterly beguiling maybe outside of that scott walker or laurie anderson Mm -hmm. yeah sorry the one that i think is the most influential one that you just mentioned in passing actually 
Because, you know, the thing is, the Smiths, it, it was revolutionary, it was great, but you couldn't say it sort of hinted at a future for pop or rock. I mean, obviously, bands like Suede took the Smiths' template to an extent, but there was no real future in it. And, and nor was there really in these albums that I felt represented a new spirit of progressive albums like Brilliant Trees and Climate Hunter and Mr. Heartbreak. Actually, the effect was quite minimal in terms of the wider culture, unfortunately. But I do think... E2, E4 is one of those albums that you listen Mm. to it. And it's perhaps because of the simplicity of the production. It sounds like it could be tomorrow. I'm going to slightly agree with you, but I'm going to raise you as well, because I think what you've just said is absolutely true of E2, E4. But I also think it's equally true, if not more so, of The Art of Noise, because The Art of Noise, in a way, predate the whole idea of DJ culture, of sampling, of using found sounds, using breaks. And that, you'd have to admit, was definitely what was about to happen in a big way. You know, right through the late 80s, through the 90s, into the 21st century, the whole idea of, of, you know, using found sound to create new music which is something very much at the heart of The Art of Noise. The sampler is at the heart of that band. I mean, it is the heartbeat of The Art of Noise, isn't it? It is the sampler. Yeah. And so in I- that sense, the sampler is the sound that's going to come to the forefront. And to be fair, it still is. As we speak in 2020, yeah. it still is the sound at the forefront of pop music in 2020. So I'm going to say Art of Noise, Who's Afraid of Art of Noise, although I totally agree with yeah. you about E2E42. And for my personal favourites, Climate of Hunter... Cocteau Twins Treasure, Swan's Cop, and Purple Rain is just is just a genius record, isn't it? Uh, so I'm going to cheat and, and pick four. But like you say, so many great records this. I could have picked A Pagan Place. I could have picked Tabula Rasa. Uh, sure. Just so many amazing records in, in 1984. Well, in the jazz world, I mean, one we missed, I think Pat Metheny's First Circle was out. And this was another album yeah. that had contemporary electronic textures, but a very strong influence from Brazilian music, but also Steve Reich. And it kind of fits into this era where things were very fluid, if you like. And obviously, about a year later, um, David Bowie works with Pat Metheny on This Is Not America, which was one of Bowie's greatest Mm. 80s achievements, I think. Mm. It's an interesting time, isn't it? And I, and I think there is, I think there is something about the, the, the fact that Live Aid is just around the corner, I can't help feeling, every time I think about Live Aid, I can't help thinking, noble as it was, it kind of set music back a little bit. Um, and this kind of incredible climate of experimentation and creativity and being being quite selfish about the way people... I mean, you know, people forget that one of the very important things about being an artist is being selfish. You have to be true to yourself. You cannot think about your audience when you make music. I mean, that's not entirely true because there are some artists that have managed to navigate those rather choppy waters of being, you know, able to please their audience but do their own thing at the same time. But most people, I think, create their best work when they are not thinking about their audience. And unfortunately, Live Aid created a climate where everyone was thinking about their audience. Um, And I think it did have a detrimental effect on the music. Anyway, I, I think you're right, you know, if I think about my record collection, you know, 1984, this again, like with 73, 80, 79, 81, there are hundreds. And there was a dearth of things that really excited me in 85, 86. Now, I was so excited at the possibilities that 84 suggested, and it was very disappointing. And of course, this leads to me meeting you in 87. I remember Mm. some of our early conversations were about what had been exciting and the absence of that in the present. And how we ended up retreating to listening to Donovan records all day long. (laughs) 
<laughs> we did, yeah. Which, which we're going to come on to in our next episode, kids, when we talk about 1967. Uh, so anyway, let's call it a day there, Tim. So next time we'll be talking 1967, as I just mentioned. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Tim. Bye-bye. Goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.